everybody, welcome to Antifada, where socially distanced unrest is maybe not best, but what we're working with at the moment. Uh, I'm AP Andy. I'm Jamie Peck. And we have with us Lucy Diavolo. We're, Thank you. We're not very far from each other uh, in North Brooklyn, but <laughs> we are talking on Skype nonetheless. Hopefully. Same neighborhood, worlds away, right? <laughs> Hopefully we'll hang out in person one, one day. So uh, Lucy is a politics editor at Teen Vogue, and this week she wrote uh, an article about mutual aid, the mutual aid networks that are uh, starting up all around the country, the concept of mutual aid. And I got to say, you beat uh, the New York Times to the punch. You beat Gothamist to the punch. Teen yeah, Vogue is so, good. Right? Oh, thanks. Yeah, we try, you know. So hopefully we'll it's, have uh... some... Teen listeners, always, you're home from school, you yeah. It's so you know we we have a, definitely have an ethos of sort of punching above our weight class. So, um, and it's honestly it's because of the the young folks that we're even in a position to do this, right? If they weren't uh, paying attention to the work we're doing, none of this would be for anything. Oh uh, yeah, Zoomers. I keep saying this. They might be our last hope of saving humanity. Mm-hmm. As scary as that is. As scary as they are to me as a millennial, I believe in them. Yeah, they're really not that scary once you get to know them. I mean, I'll be honest, it's intimidating. I think uh, the further you get from your teenage years, regardless of your generation, the scarier it gets. But like, I don't know. Uh, It's honestly like the best part of the job, right, is getting to meet the young readers online in physical spaces as well once we're you know able to be uh socially proximal again um but yeah most most of my contact with them has been limited to tiktoks and they are (laughs) very cool it's not it's not fair but for now we will continue simping from a distance (laughs) that's right Uh, Before we get into talking about mutual aid, uh, let's just have what we call in the left a go-round and see how, yeah, that's what I meant, a check-in. How are we all doing? What are our days like? And uh, if you want to get into it, what's making us particularly anxious or scared right now, if anything, Mm -hmm. and what's giving us hope? So let's start with Jamie. All right. Well... I'm personally, like, fine. I mean, I'm no worse than I was before this whole thing happened. Um, I've been working from home, doing the majority report, so I still have that job, which is good. Um, I I was going to have a birthday party, but I canceled it, obviously, out of, you know, not wanting to be an asshole and spread disease around the world, but... A few friends still surprised me and showed up with a cake, which was nice. Uh, Definitely a safe number of friends. Don't worry. Um, But I'm more worried about my older family members and other people who are still who are vulnerable to this thing, although I don't want to get it either, Uh, as well as the effect that this may have politically on the world. It it looks like it could create an opening for some kind of radical activity, but it all also could create an opening for, you know, disaster fascism. So keeping an eye on that. Um, also keeping an eye on my cats a lot in the apartment. Um, watching them interact, which is always fascinating. Um, and then 
I put my name on a, a mutual aid list actually and went on my first grocery run last night. So shout out to the DSA Socialist Feminist Working Group's uh, subgroup Abolition Action as well as the Eco-Socialist Working Group's uh, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief Group um, for setting some of these networks up incredibly quickly. Um, and I guess I should probably save this for the end, but I'll put a link where you can donate to the grocery fund um, at the bottom of the show notes. Cool. Um, Lucy, you want to go? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm working from home as well. I've been for a little over a week now. Um, you know, I have been socially isolating to a pretty extreme extent because I had a cold about like two and a half weeks ago. and was coughing and runny nose and never ran a fever. But it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, partially like not understanding the virus at all and partially just whatever kind of respiratory infection I might have had, not wanting to spread it around right now. Um, so, you know, it's been a fun little chance to experiment with like the most extreme end of the CDC guidelines. Uh, but it's, you know, we have cats here. I have a bunch of roommates. I have a great roof. Oh, it's been such a godsend. And aside from sort of the anxiety inducing nature of the entire last, I don't know, week and a half week now, I, I mean, time is just meaningless at this point to me, but, uh, just trying to do the work. Um, you know, like you said, I had the, the piece come out, sort of wanted to plant the flag on mutual aid as a theme of this moment pretty early on. And I think um, it's going down, beat me to it, but uh, I'm always happy to concede to the folks over there uh, on something like that. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think, you know, today I published two more stories that uh, were sort of like Q&As with people who... Um, are dealing with this stuff firsthand. Um, I did an interview with uh, a woman. She runs a bakery at a town in West Virginia, and they're the town with the first confirmed case in the state. And West Virginia was the last state with a confirmed case. So it's kind of this interesting moment at um, like concerns about the extreme end of the lackluster healthcare infrastructure in the country because it's West Virginia. And, uh, you know, the the investment there is not super high. Um, and then a student at UChicago, we talked to a senior at UChicago about, um, you know, the mutual aid stuff they were organizing out there uh, and sort of the the advocacy and organizing they're doing, not just been on, on behalf of their fellow students, but um, on behalf of staff at the school. Uh, to make sure that um, they're going to be uh, taken care of financially for, you know, the duration of this, hopefully. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll find those articles, put them all in the show notes. Uh, so as for me, I'm doing pretty good this week. I was really freaked out last week. I just have a tendency to get ahead of everybody's anxiety. Uh, like I remember when 9-11 uh, when happened, I was like the only kid in the school who was like, oh, yeah, this is probably uh, Osama bin Laden up to his old tricks. Because I've been like, you know, I read like conspiracy theory message boards for a while. And I knew that uh, this was like the, th this kind of thing had been like talked about for a while. So, you know, this whole winter I've been watching what's going on in Wuhan, thinking like, ah, a billion people under lockdown. 
that doesn't seem good. But I got to say, you know, so much of that has happened over the course of my life where these disasters spread somewhere else in the world and it just almost never comes home. So the big shock for me is actually watching it come here. Um, and I guess it's some small comfort that is happening everywhere else in the world and things like this are constantly happening around the world. Uh, there's uh, immense misery <laughs> in the, to massive populations at all corners of the world and we're getting just a small taste of it now and uh, hopefully we can rise to the challenge like uh, people do everywhere where this happens. And that's what we'll be talking about today. I'll go into a little bit uh, later something about how my my days are. Uh, we'll talk maybe a little bit about self-care. Um, but uh, let's get into the article. Um, but before that, why don't we just talk about what mutual aid is? You, you referenced Kropotkin in your piece, but why, why don't you give your own definition? Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, um, mutual aid is sort of a funny word because it's uh, or a term because it's one that I was introduced to through anarchists and anarchists in my life. And I find like, uh, you know, not that there's to draw some sort of dichotomy or false binary, but most of the socialist thought I've like come into contact with in my life has been introduced to me through writing. Um, whereas I find with a lot of the anarchist stuff that really sticks with me, it tends to come from, uh, you know, a personal relationship and uh, meeting someone who um, is really passionate about these ideas. So uh, kind of, I guess, <sighs> The challenge in a, a moment like this to me is to sort of understand that uh, the systems we have aren't going to be there for everyone. Um, they aren't already, and a crisis situation is um, like going to exacerbate inequity, right? And uh, a lot of what I do is just trying to use these sort of concepts that, um, you know, might not be in a high school history textbook uh, or might be in there through a very specific lens um, in order to illuminate both like the present and the past, because we do a lot of great history content, too. And so mutual aid felt like such a natural, um, you know, sort of concept to latch onto in this moment because I was already seeing a lot of projects come online under that name uh, using that terminology and it's one that to me has always just like meant simply helping each other it's looking out for you know the person next to you the person across the street the people around you um, I think it's you know, important because it's like, why do we even need like a, a political term for just helping each other? And it's like we do because our political systems are geared to alienate us and isolate us and exploit us. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is important to have a term for it just because these kinds of actions have been so thoroughly co-opted by the NGO industrial complex and uh, liberals who are very invested in capitalism. So they're willing, I mean, going back to Jane Addams, right? Some of the earliest uh, liberal reformers would kind of parachute into these poor neighborhoods 
uh, chide them for living in squalor, uh, help them in ways that made the liberals feel good about themselves without ever questioning the underlying power structures that create inequality in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think like mutual is a really important part of it, right? Because like aid is its own like good thing that you can do for people, but it's also something that can be done uh, from a sort of top-down position. Um, and the mutual, the, the mutual and mutual aid, um, I think is a really significant adjective in that uh, it really communicates like this has to be about uh, all of us together from the bottom up, you know? And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Kropotkin saw it as this sort of, uh, this different way of looking at the way, at how ecosystems are organized. Because, mm -hmm. of course, there's the social Darwinist conception of survival of the fittest, which is doesn't have much to do with what Darwin actually said. But Kropotkin saw this sort of symbi symbiosis of the entire ecosystem um, where even though, you know, animals might eat other animals or whatever, um, it doesn't, everything works together in this sort of self-sustaining harmony. And he thought maybe that that kind of idea could be applied to society through supporting your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting because Kropotkin has like a Darwinian sense of it in like the, the sense that Darwin arrived at, not like the sort of bastardization of the term where it's survival of the fittest, right? Like Darwin later in life even came to understand that it's survival of the luckiest a lot of the time. And looking at like my reading on Kropotkin specifically, um, the I pulled that quote from um, uh, Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. He's talking about, like you're saying, the systems in animal worlds that allow community survival and even, you know, communities to thrive, um, applying those into the more complex social networks and systems that humans find themselves in. And like mutual aid then becomes this sort of evolutionary imperative almost because in order for all of us to survive and for the species to thrive uh we can't just allow it to be the strong taking advantage of the weak the powerful exploiting the powerless it's interesting that that he spoke about it in kind of naturalistic terms because one benefit to mutual aid organizing that i see is it serves to kind of denaturalize these quote-unquote natural disasters, right? And showing that uh, disasters are not just an act of God, but they are a man-made function of the system under which we are all currently living. And it doesn't mm. have to be this way. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the anytime, I, like it's so fascinating that so many of these like luminary thinkers that their thought patterns influence us for better or for worse are coming from this era of natural history being this sort of like hybrid poetry and science almost and how poignant that is now that we find ourselves um, in a you know natural crisis of the environment. So mutual aid has a long history within radical milieus besides just being something that kind of 
naturally happens in a million different ways in all kinds of societies. Mutual aid organizations were a, a major kind of social organism in the early 20th century among immigrant groups, largely. And of course, those often advanced into like more proletarian organizations within unions and political parties. And we still see the the remnants of these in like uh, mutual aid and pleasure organizations in New, in New Orleans and uh, like uh, a lot of what we today know as street gangs were sort of mutual aid organizations initially in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but the the more recent referent, I, I think, is relating to natural disasters and other kinds of disasters in the last two decades. And, and the first time I really heard about mutual aid disaster relief was following Katrina. Uh, do you want to go into what happened uh, in, in New Orleans and, and maybe some other recent examples? Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't know that I can, can speak to, to Katrina as much. I'm not... Um... A student of that moment to the extent that uh, uh, a lot of people are. I mean, I guess I would just say broadly that like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, I guess mutual aid is not something I really think of in terms of disaster even necessarily as much. It's sort of the term that I came to apply to a lot of the grassroots organizing that I saw happening firsthand when I was in Chicago for a couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, that stuff was sort of patterned on um, the, the stuff that was happening in like the 60s and early 70s in New York with uh, the LGBTQ community. Um, and sort of these more like long-term uh, mutual aid kind of setups that didn't necessarily understand themselves that way. But, you know, you had these like, you know, famously like houses with mothers of children. And it was like this dynamic centered around family, not by blood ties necessarily, but by virtue of being a bunch of gay, trans, bi, queer people who had all fled to New York City or been born here and ostracized from the family, which was this sort of traditional network of support, uh, in large part thanks to the enshrinement of the nuclear family um, as a social unit. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess... You know, I, I, again, can't speak so much to the disaster because this is really, you know, uh, the first sort of moment of national crisis I've even really covered as a journalist. Um, I mean, that's not entirely true. Like, we've had other moments. Uh, I've been at Teen Vogue a little over two years now. And, um, you know, the I started the week after Parkland. Um the family separation stuff at the border, that entire situation that the Trump administration created was a moment of a high anxiety for like our readers because, um, you know, we, we try to do a really good job covering immigration stories. Uh, we know a lot of young people who are either immigrants themselves, the children of immigrants don't have places to turn. So, um, yeah, I guess, you know, my, my sort of, like understanding of like real world examples of it is grounded in, you know, examples like the Black Panthers Rainbow Society, in examples like uh, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, the organization that Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera started that, um, you know, was basically just about emergency housing for young people on the street. Out of all of these 
sort of uh, operations that you've studied, are there any mutual aid projects that you find especially inspiring or successful or whose models you've seen spreading or should spread to a larger portion of society? Yeah, I mean, I guess I can, in the in the current moment, there are so many different kinds of things we're seeing pop up. I mean, in the, the big piece, we talked about, um, you know, the sort of the broad, like NYC United Against Coronavirus project, which is sort of about networking different neighborhood like localized geographically based efforts and then we also talked about i talked to people who were organizing on um uh from this abolition group survived and punished uh we're doing a soap drive for incarcerated folks and um got so much support and attention uh that um eliza petty uh they were the person i talked to from survived and punished like they uh, were able to build it out immediately um, and start networking with other grassroots groups in order to, um, you know, keep building uh, the financial support behind the soap drive uh, because, uh, you know, prisons, jails are going to be really dangerous places in an era of pandemic. And that's why we're seeing people get released in a lot of places. Um, I, I know Iran did that. I think Ohio has done that now. And like anytime you have Iran and Ohio in political alignment, I think that really speaks to the nature of the crisis in the moment. Um, and so then the other sort of like broad reaching one uh, was from uh, Walela Nehanda, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And they are immunocompromised and uh, I think leukemia was their condition. Yeah, advanced leukemia, looking for a stem cell donor, like cannot leave the house if there is the potential that an infectious disease um, could could infect them. And, uh, you know, so they just put out an ask for help, a personal ask for help. Their partner was running all over L.A. trying to find... Lysol wipes, every store was out. They were going for like $127 a pack online and just put an ask out on Twitter like, hey, does anyone have any to spare? And got hooked up really quick. And then more and more people kept offering help. And that sort of spun out into these two lists, one of immunocompromised and immunosuppressed people who are worried about leaving the house right now, and another of people who are willing to make deliveries and go through the necessary disinfectant protocols in order to be able to drop off a package for someone in that situation and not even ever meet this person, maybe always be on the other side of a door, uh, but like be there to support them. So um, I think like those sorts of models and then like it's even simpler stuff too I'm seeing on Twitter where you're seeing like, Hey, we're a uh, uh, you know a bunch of us get together to watch soccer games at this bar, and the bar is shut down, and all the staff is laid off. So, as this like group of soccer fans that drinks at this bar to watch our team play, we're raising money for the staff. Um, uh, another one that like has been mind blowing to watch has been Swap Brooklyn's um, sex worker relief fund. 
uh, that was really the one of the first projects I saw that sort of helped me understand the magnitude of what we're about to see um, because sex workers are an immensely at-risk population right now, not just uh, to the virus necessarily. Uh, I don't even know if at all. I don't. Obviously, we probably don't have evidence um, in a scientific sense about that, although I hope someone's looking to tell that story. But economically, obviously, sex work is a sort of industry right now that, um, you know, people might be uh, scared away from. And um, I saw today that that relief fund had raised, I think, $40,000 already. Um, and they are taking requests coming in um, from sex workers on the ground here in New York uh, who are seeing huge drops in income already. That is definitely something I've seen people talking about online is the economic impacts for folks in that um, line of work are already being felt. Yeah, I was thinking about that today, too, in reference to um, SESTA-FOSTA, which, as we know, has driven a lot of sex workers into more IRL forms of sex work uh, because, you know, online sites are being shut down for anything resembling sexual commerce. Mm -hmm. And thinking about what's happening right now, so many people have got to be in just an impossible double bind. Um, also, they're trying to use this right now. Congress is trying to sneak in a new SESTA-FOSTA to this thing called the Earn It Act, which nobody is oh, paying no. attention to because, you know, we're in the middle of a fucking crisis and it's it's going to I think it's going to be a bigger story, hopefully, than it has been. But it's really distressing yeah. to see. Yeah, you brought up a lot of really great projects there. Um, and, and one thing that's been and I think, you know, as this crisis deepens, we're going to see um, what a, a large amount of needs that need to be fulfilled. And so the way these mutual aid products are shaping up, there's so many of them, you know, you see a new like five G docs every day. It seems overwhelming, but I think the more people engage with this stuff, like Jamie, you mentioned you, you went on a run the other day, the more people are going to see like how important this is and, and how good it feels and how it's going to, you know, keep everybody sane and bring everyone together. And as the crisis deepens, it's going to be uh, more clear, like how it's going to shape up. So I think we're seeing the seeds of a larger movement now. Um, and another thing that you mentioned about the uh, the sex worker relief funds, which I'll, I'll put a link to in the show notes, uh, there, I, I was really worried when the bars and restaurants started shutting down that there was going to be a lot of fundraisers for the businesses because mm -hmm. uh, I've seen I've seen those over the years. Like when a restaurant shuts down, there's like a, a eighty thousand dollar fundraiser for like the owner of the restaurant. And fortunately, I, I have not seen any of those. In fact, I've seen most restaurants saying, "We have a we we're we're going to raise money for our workers, uh, so chip in for the workers, or even just GoFundmes that have nothing to do with the business and are just for restaurant workers or bookstore workers or what have you." Um, so the GoFundmes, you know, uh, have been a heartening first step, I think. Um, but yeah. one thing. Let the uh, state take care of the businesses. They've made it very clear that that's where their right. emphasis is. And also, you know, this is me being a bit of a curmudgeon, but I, I don't really like New York City nightlife too much. So I might like a bar or a restaurant, but not enough to like, you know, wish it were still there or want to support it. I care about the workers. 
um, and they can probably make those that food in that cocktail in any other setting. Um, I so, care about uh, the workers more, but it will definitely change the landscape of New York even more than it already has been changed if a lot of small businesses are shut down during this and they never reopen again and we get a fucking yeah. city bank in their place. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the... It is scary because, like, the primary concern has to be the people at, like, the very bottom of the the economic ladder, right? Because they're going to be the most at risk. But, like, the, the crucial question of how far up the ladder you get when you start to get to that, like, small business owner level, because that radically changes workers' conditions moving forward too, right? If every, like, you know, neighborhood bar turns into a Starbucks or, uh, you know, some, like, like bougie like instagram ready situation owned by a billion dollar restaurant group or something like that it radically changes um the conditions for the people that work in those places not to mention just the impact it has on community in that like you know there's a reason it's called a pub it's a public house and these spaces to sort of bring people together really matter. And it matters that the people who live in the surrounding area feel like they have a place they can go to. And because of the nature of real estate in a major city in the US, anytime um, you see vacancy, it seems to up the chances of displacement. Yeah, it's sort of a trickle down effect that <clears throat> we'll always fall the hardest on the most uh, oppressed people to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, well, one other one other uh, project that I haven't seen too much talk about that may maybe uh, you've seen it, Lucy, is a uh, um, mutual aid projects for the children of healthcare workers, or I mean, for healthcare workers in general, because they're really going to be, you know, the if this is a, a war on the virus, as Cuomo is saying. They're going to be the frontline soldiers and their children are not in school and a lot of them are single parents. Uh, have you seen anything that's organizing to, to support healthcare workers specifically? You know, I haven't. And that's probably because like prior to this, I, I you know, we don't cover a lot of health stories necessarily. I'm lucky to be uniquely positioned because my mom has been in the field of public health her whole life. And so I grew up learning about things like disease vectors and risk communication um, but, uh, you know, I, all I would say is like, it seemed like a big part of de Blasio's, um, hesitancy to shut down the schools was related to what happens to the kids of first responders. And, um, you know, I think it is important. I'm, you know, not trying to give him props or anything, not about praising a politician personally ever for me, but I think the move to make sure that those kids are still going to have a physical location that they can go to for school and benefits from benefit from the aspects of the social safety net that school provides for a lot of folks. Um, like that is important. And, um, New York, of course, is in a unique position. So, you know, what happens to those kids uh, at a municipal level all across the country is going to be really interesting because, you know, I haven't heard anything from that about that from really 
anyone else and like i have abc's youtube live stream that is just press conference after press conference going pretty much all the time up here in my room right now yeah i got an update you know i texted covid19 or whatever to the number that you text after we all mm -hmm. got that alert on our phones and i was heartened to see that um there will be meals available for pickup at public schools for mm -hmm. people who need them because that was part of the hesitation in shutting down schools was a lot of students are either poor or actually homeless and rely on public schools for a lot of services that they don't have access to otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it's you know. one of the most dramatic illustrations of how unprepared our systems were for this moment, right? Um, that, uh, like, you know, not to say that, like, we should have seen this coming and radically altered our society to be prepared for a pandemic, uh, but, like, the fact that, you know, so many children um, need help just getting enough to eat is like a sort of really damning sign of where we're at as a society. Yeah, and you talked about uh, about the uh, the food pantry infrastructure in New York mm -hmm. in your article and uh, how that's always been there and they've always needed help and they still need help. Mm -hmm. um, so I yeah, want to go think, over some, yeah. uh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, that was Andy uh, Ratto uh, from NYC United Against Coronavirus who brought that up. And I think um, like your point about uh, these existing resources also needing more help is like great, a great point because not only are we going to like, you know, see advanced disinfecting protocols at places like that for the foreseeable future, but in the event that people do get sick um, and, uh, you know, they're able to contain the infection to the extent that those organizations could stay open, um, you know, they'll need people to step in and uh, fill the shoes mm -hmm. um, uh, to keep the projects alive. Yeah, I'll also put in the show notes a, a zine that came out from Mutual Aid Disaster Relief uh, with a, a bunch of ideas on how to uh, hygienically do this mutual aid work. And it covers a bunch of different topics. Um, so just I want to mention a, I made a short list of mutual aid ideas um, that I have just seen that I think are you know effective at this early stage. Here's uh, you one, can use. Uh, one, Jamie, you mentioned delivering food to sick and elderly and immunocompromised people or anyone who requests it. Um, obviously, we're going to see more in that as the, the virus spreads. A lot of people are going to need to just stay in their room for two weeks. And uh, so, you know, you can always offer that as help. Um, whenever I see a GoFundMe, if it looks legit, whatever it is, I'm just in the position where I can ship in five or ten bucks. Uh, maybe you are too, maybe you're not. That's one thing you can do, um, you know, if you're just sitting around online all day. Uh, you can talk to your neighbors. Maybe you've never done it before. Maybe you have, you've done it infrequently, but just say, hey, you know, I'm here uh, all day. If you need anything, uh, you know, here's my number. You can slide something under your door if you're worried about doing a face-to-face -face thing. Um, and then I also thought that uh, a lot of people, when they, they start talking about launching these projects, they go into big picture ideas of how we can build like a nationwide network or a nationwide response or, you know, uh, they, they, they maybe they, they think too big and they that's good for some people. But for some people, 
it maybe paralyzes them. So I think unless you're like Elon Musk and you have uh, a, a bunch of factories that you can devote to making ventilators, it's probably best to just focus on what you can do around you. Like I said, talking to your neighbors, talking to your roommates, talking to your family, and really dedicating yourself to helping out on that level. Um, and of course, that moves towards the idea of the fact that uh, the big problem for a lot of people is not the virus right now, but it's not having a job. They just lost their job or they will lose their job pretty soon. And why is that a problem? Is that they can't afford to pay rent. We talked uh, on the show earlier this week with Lion Goes Down about how to start moving towards a rent strike and not just withholding your rent, but doing it in a smart way where your whole building is in it together. Um, and obviously that's just going to be a necessity for a lot of people. So this is an idea that's gaining momentum and we should, you know, really try to do it carefully, like know the laws, um, know our neighbors and like coordinate it in an intelligent way. Uh, so when this crisis is over, we don't just immediately get evicted. Yeah, well, I think that's all very good advice. Um, I've seen people talking about wanting to organize a nationwide rent strike. And I think that's a good idea, especially if people can't pay their rent anyway. So there's really no downside to it. But I would also caution people against doing it without really knowing what they're doing, because it can really fuck people over if you try to do a rent strike wrong. Like there are a lot of legal loopholes for the landlord. Um, you're supposed to be like, I mean, you know more about rent strikes than me, Andy, but you're supposed to be like putting the money in escrow in a lot of situations. And, you know, if people are stoked to do it, but not they're like only one or two units in the building doing it, um, they're probably just going to be fined or evicted once this is over. But um, I hope like this is probably some pie in the sky shit. But looking at the huge grassroots network that was built up during the Bernie Sanders campaign, which is now, you know, I don't want to be a pessimist, but probably over, right? Bernie's probably not going to be the nominee. Um, a lot of the justification among socialists for engaging in the Bernie Sanders movement to the degree that it is a movement and trying to build a movement around it is that we're building an infrastructure and a huge phone tree contact list that can be used for other things. So I think if Bernie really wants to be the organizer in chief, hopefully he still can be, or other people who are involved with, um, I mean, a DSA has a huge independent expenditure campaign, DSA for Bernie, the whole point of which is um, they don't have to do what Bernie says. They can uh, use this network and use the information for other things. So I'm not going to hold my breath, and I have no control over what they do with this, uh, with this network, but I hope moving forward that that's something that can be leveraged for some sort of collective action. Yeah, and uh, in Los Angeles, the, the L.A. Tenants Union has has uh, been really active in putting out a lot of demands, um, uh, organizing towards a rent strike uh, and also uh, organizing um, with and on behalf of, of the large homeless population in L.A. Um, I've been really impressed by what they're putting out. Families are saying, well, you want us to self-quarantine and isolate, but we're homeless, so we're going to take this empty building. And already you're seeing mayors and governors starting to requisition empty property and there's a lot of it and there's going to be more of it now that, like you know we work is going to be out of business cruise lines are going to be out of business there's nothing but space and you know people that need that space to quarantine so um, another project we can be thinking about right now 
besides demanding, uh, you know, rent freezes and and that kind of thing, is also taking space for ourselves. You know, if you if you've ever wanted to try to squat, this is probably the best possible time to do it. <laughs> you know, open up a building and give it to uh, someone who doesn't have one. Um, and things are changing dramatically right now. It, it's it's possible that that building will be you know yours for the duration. But obviously that's easier said than done. Look into what they've done in LA. I think they've done a pretty smart job of it. Do you have anything on that, Lucy? Gosh, I mean, in terms of like, I don't know. I, I guess I never tend to think in terms of nationwide just because like, I mean, like I have to, right? Because we, we cover national politics, but um, from an organizing perspective, focusing on the national level uh, just always makes me want to go international. <laughs> um, so... You know, I think that's right. Ultim- it's because you got good politics. <laughs> I think ultimately, like what we're covering right now, what I'm prioritizing is um, just local because ultimately, like, you know, whatever the DSA wants to do, I, you know, welcome that and applaud it. But um, like ultimately, the DSA is not, uh, is, is, a, is a small, but like, very important minority of Americans. And part of my work has always fundamentally been political education. Um, That is sort of the mandate when you're writing about politics for young people uh, has to be that like you come at it from a perspective of, um, you know, I'm not going to make any assumptions about, um, you know, uh, whether or not you've heard these terms before or I'm going to assume that like, um, not that you need me to explain everything, but, uh, that you are smart enough to put the pieces together as a young person reading political reporting in teen Vogue, um, that, uh, you know, I can give you the information that you need to, um, apply that to your life. And so, uh, I think continuing to do, sort of grassroots level outreach, getting involved on that level um, where there's not a lot of room for pontificating or uh, theoretical perfection, but there is right now a dire and urgent need for practice. Um, One might even say praxis. One might, um, but I would only ever say it like praxis. Yeah, that's right. That's the correct Um, pronunciation. Don't take yeah. work away from Simone Norman, please. It's a hard time for her as well. <laughs> we Oh, we just published her Rosa Luxemburg uh, uh, OG history. That was one oh, of good. our most recent history pieces. Yeah. So you are giving Simone. work to her, in fact. I, yes, I, I, we're working yeah. together. You know how it is. That's um, great. Simone's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also great, Rosa Luxemburg. Duh. Absolutely. But, uh, if you're listening to this show, I probably don't need me to tell you that. <laughs> might be a good idea to read Rosa Luxemburg for those of us who haven't. Mm-hmm. I have not read much Rosa Luxemburg. I, think... yeah, I know those... Market Books just put out a bunch of free text. I'm not sure if Rosa's in there, but um, that's always a, a great place to turn for reading material. Love the folks over at Haymarket. Oh, yeah. I think Verso is also making many of their books available online right awesome. now for people who are sitting around and, you know, Want to do a little political ed? Mm-hmm. And it's if you want to learn about, about text. 
If you want to learn about the history of Jay Posadas, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism, my book is coming out April 20th from Pluto Books, and you can pre-order it now. With that in mind, I'll talk a little bit about self-care. Um, this is a, you know, I think this is a kind of mutual aid in a way, although self-care is usually defined as something that's, uh, it's, it's often abused as something uh, akin to selfishness. I think it's actually important to keep yourself strong and capable in order to help others and to support others who are perhaps worse affected or less capable of dealing with this crisis. So I thought maybe we could just end by talking about some things that are making us feel better and feel more capable and powerful on a day-to-day basis. Like, for example, I've been jogging every day. The gym is closed, so I've just been jogging, and it's good to get fresh air. Sunlight is a disinfectant. That's not just a saying. Uh, it's true. Um, it's good to see, like, what's, you know, still open and still around. And I don't get too close to anybody, so I don't think it's really dangerous at all. Um, this is a good time to start keeping a journal if you haven't done that before. It's, you know, it's basically self-therapy. You just write whatever's going on in your head. You don't have to worry about anyone reading it or judging you. Um, it, it can make you feel really good. And, and so can reading, doing other kinds of writing, um, making healthy meals, texting and calling friends who maybe you haven't talked to in a while. Um, I actually have like an app where you can have these like a, a daily checklist. And so I just try to, it just feels good to like check these things off. So you can maybe just instead of like binge watching all day or sleeping until two because you don't have to go to work and work anymore, you can just try to keep up with these things um, and, you know, get them done every day. Uh, and then one other thing that always makes me feel good if I feel like I'm not doing enough uh, is uh, I like to write letters to prisoners. Uh, usually I pick somebody from the Anarchist Black Cross uh, prisoner guide. Um, you know, just anyone who I, I'm interested in their story. And you can just write about your day or your thoughts, uh, anything you want. They always appreciate getting this stuff. Um, there's also Black and Pink that has, uh, you know, lists of uh, queer prisoners who are looking for correspondence. And then there's a site called writeaprisoner.com, which just has uh, all kinds of different prisoners who are looking for pen pals. And we really have to think about them in this time because they are already isolated and confined um, uh, and there's there's nothing that they can do uh, but sit and wait and it's uh, that's a really horrible situation it's always good to keep you know however depressed we might be to keep it in perspective those are all very good ideas Andy um, although I will say uh, sleeping till 2 p.m. and getting some things done not mutually exclusive if that's your normal day, then sure. But for me, you know, I usually wake up at nine and now it's creeping up until 11. <laughs> so mm. that doesn't that's doesn't feel too good for me personally. You're so disciplined, man. If I didn't have majority report happening right now, I would definitely be back on my vampire schedule that I kept when I was a freelance writer. So shout out to Sam Cedar, I guess, for, uh, <laughs> you know, giving me a job and that kind of structure. Although, you know, bosses are bad and stuff. Well, Sam's like I said, right. sunlight's good for you, and so is vitamin D. So mm-hmm. um, I guess there's nothing technically wrong with staying up all night and sleeping all day. It's healthier, I think, to be out during the day. Yeah, yeah. I heard that. If I had a nickel for every time someone told me that, 
you know, just uh, do do what feels healthy to you. How about that? Yeah. So, what about you, Lucy? Do you have anything to add to the the self care list? I, I mean, it's fun to be on the other side of this question for once. I ask people this one a lot at the end of interviews. Um, yeah, I, you know, I try to like bust out a 10 pack of push ups every time I'm like feeling sort of blah, spending a lot of time out on my roof, just sort of like looking at things in the distance because um, working from home has actually upped my screen time on top of like Corona anxiety, upping my screen time in a huge way. Um, my screen time report came in on my phone on Sunday and I had spent more than a full day on Twitter just on my phone last week. So you know, some like uh, trying to mitigate, you know, that's really the strategy. Um, and then I'd like play a lot of music. Uh, that's like a really important exercise and like just sort of uh, vent for me. Um, uh, like doing either stupid covers of my banjo or even writing new music again and just like working out feelings. Um, Journaling, I would definitely give a big up to that. I would give a big up to Black and Pink. I love Black and Pink um, and all the work that they do. And uh, definitely uh, write to someone through their program, show them some love. Um, I think, uh, you know, I would definitely underscore like finding ways to stay social right now too. Um, sort of these like long phone calls with uh, friends and my mom and my sister and uh, even my dad now is willing to stay on the phone with me for uh, a pretty pretty good chunk of time and uh, it's really um, I don't know it's just nice to have someone there on the other end of the line uh, who you know cares about you and cares about you too and be reminded even in like <sighs> this sort of like um, uh you know, apocalypse of uh, uh, like daily shocks to the system. Um, like we're all still here and we still love each other. Yeah, Word. exactly. That reminds it's... me, I should probably call my grandma. She would probably appreciate it. Mm -hmm. um, we can set aside our differences about Bernie versus Biden. And I'm going to be a good granddaughter for once. Mm hmm. So, okay, there's another section on here that I really wanted to get to, which Andy titled very nicely Philosophy of the Crisis, because uh, I really want to get into how mutual aid can fit into a larger kind of leftist program. Um, like, much like you, much like both of you, I think, um, I was first introduced to the term mutual aid from being a part of anarchist and communist spaces, uh, particularly around the time of Occupy Wall Street which was then very much put into practice immediately after when uh, Superstorm Handy Sandy hit the city and we used the same networks that were formed during Occupy to really go out into affected communities most of the time before anybody else was there and uh, bring people the stuff they needed um, and have like a two-way communication with them about it. So. There have been a lot of arguments within the socialist left uh, about what role, if any, mutual aid should play in our long-term organizing strategy. Um, there are some people I've talked to in DSA, especially those aligned with more, shall we say, electoralist or labor bureaucracy-minded approaches, 
who think it's kind of a distraction from doing what we really need to be doing to build power, which um, in their case often involves contesting elections and more traditional forms of labor organizing. Um, other more anarchist types think we should be throwing ourselves into it and don't always construct a very detailed explanation for how it fits into a larger program of power building. Um, I'm inclined to agree with the communist caucus on this, surprise, surprise, that mutual aid can and should be an integral part of what we do, but only if we do it in the right way. So what way is that? Um, what's it going to do for us? Uh, I think about it a lot of the time in terms of base building, right? Because I think one thing that the failure of the Bernie Sanders campaign, well, I don't want to call it a failure, but you know, a failure on the terms of uh, bourgeois electoralism anyway, one thing it shows is we really need to be doing the work to build a working class base that's willing to sign on to what we're doing and take the risk of engaging a class struggle or even just vote for our candidates, right? We need independent working class organizations. Um, and if people on the socialist left, many of whom have not lived in our neighborhoods for a very long time at all, uh, if we sit back and let the most oppressed people around us be essentially murdered by the state, I don't see how that's ever going to happen. So maybe we're not ever going to change the demographics of DSA substantially, but at least we can be viewed in a more favorable way and build trust with the working class communities in which we live. Um, I think that's really important. Also, like I said before, it helps to denaturalize the present conditions show the man-made nature of catastrophes and, you know, a, a pattern for how the world could be instead. Um, it really uh, debunks a lot of the human nature arguments made by people who support capitalism, i.e., you know, humans are naturally competitive, naturally hierarchical, naturally selfish and shitty, et cetera, et cetera. I think our people's reactions in time of crisis show that that's not necessarily true. Um, and lastly, I think it shows how we can build infrastructure and provide for human needs better than the state can, even with way less resources than the state. And now this should not preclude making demands of the state. And I think that is a back and forth that has been happening and is you know, worthy of having. And I'm not really sure where the balance is. But um, yeah, maybe you guys have some ideas about that. Like there's certain things that the state needs to do that we're not going to be able to do. Like we can't make ventilators. Um, if all the leftists in the country got together and like, just, I guess there are some people working on that, but that's, that's a certain kind of technical knowledge for small scale production that we're not going to be able to do. Um, but also the state can't care for us, for each other. Like they, they can send money and supplies and they should. Um, but their whole MO is speeding things up, making things cheaper, reducing costs, uh, making health care like uh, just in time instead of preventative. I, so for, basically, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that um, mutual aid ha has a political horizon. I think it's something that humans just naturally do and should recognize as a good thing. And then through mutual aid, we encounter this conflict with our enemy which is the economy. This crisis right now, you know, you could see it as a, as a conflict between society and a virus. And that's how it's going to be portrayed in, in the media. We're at war with the virus or whatever. 
But really, it's society versus the economy. Because why don't why have hospitals been closing for the last 10 years? Why is there a ventilator shortage? Why do uh, why why were all of the pre preparations in the last month for this focused on keeping the economy afloat? And, and this is how, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats, which are two arms of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, are handling this. They're trying to figure out how to keep money in motion, sending checks so people keep paying their rent. That's where the lines are drawn right now. And uh, mutual aid, you're absolutely right, can help us like meet each other and gain trust between each other and learn skills and share resources and ideas. But I think ultimately the horizon is, uh, you know, taking power back from the the class that controls the, the world right now. Yeah, like it should never uh, be considered a substitute for making demands on the state. And, you know, a lot of the time, the tool for expropriating things, resources, what have you from the ruling class is the state. So it would be really great, for example, to see the state, I don't know, take uh, empty buildings away from absentee landlords and use them to house people in a time of crisis. But um, I, I also think there's something to be said for just regrowing social bonds that have been so so dissolved and so devolved by the market, right? Like we're always banging on about this on the show, but, um, but part of the really difficult task that we face as communists is how to, as, especially now, right? When we're literally forced to be atomized in our own homes, even further than we were to begin with under late capitalism is how, how we regrow these social bonds and, um, community and really the social fabric in a way that will enable people to work together as a class and become less alienated from one another. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that's, I think, definitely at play right now in, in how, how we respond to this. Yeah, I think it, a lot of it hinges, too, on whether, I don't know, like, Obviously, like, I think this is kind of the point both of you are making in a way is like your perspective on the state as either, you know, uh, whether it ranges from like the so, sort of most like fatalistic interpretation of Gramsci and that like it's merely a vehicle for ruling class unity or whether you view it as something that uh, through either reform or political revolution or whatever sort of terminology revolutions yeah uh something that can actually be um repurposed to serve the working class in either like the model of the new deal um you know to a lesser extent maybe the model of lyndon b johnson's war on poverty um you know sort of things like that but uh I guess for me, like the role of mutual aid organizing in uh, a leftist politic, socialist, communist, anarchist, um, what have you, is like, are you going to show up when it's time to actually do the work? Are you going to be there to enact the world that you want to see whether or not the state is going to do it? Um, because you're right, like the way that our systems are set up right now barring like seizure and occupation of uh, factories and, um, you know, bringing the workers in there on side to 
you know, literally seized the means of production for this life-saving medical equipment that we need uh, in this moment. Um, like, this is going to have to be a negotiation. And from a sort of pragmatic perspective, understanding that the state is going to be wrapped up in that sort of mass production and a lot of sort of symbolic moves in a lot of economic management at the sort of top level of the economy. Um, you know, it becomes all the more incumbent on us with the ability and willingness to organize to do that at the grassroots level. Um, because, uh, you know, the worst case scenario is, of course, like always further victimization by the state from the people who are already uh, subject to its worst uh, elements. But, um, you know, the abdication of the role the state does play in a lot of uh, our society right now is, um, you know, the potential challenge in and of itself. And um, I think even after this crisis, the practice of mutual aid has the potential to be a form of power that can be taken from the state because whether or not there's a crisis, if people are the ones providing for each other, if people are the ones running food pantries, if people are the ones running daycare programs, and that doesn't have to come from a state you don't trust, um, you know, you can break off something potentially like the school to prison pipeline if your schools and your prisons aren't controlled by the same politicians. Yeah, I, I also like the idea of thinking about disaster relief in a more holistic way, because as you've mentioned before, um, the crisis has existed for a lot of people since way before this particular crisis started. So thinking about disaster relief, not just in terms of things you do in a disaster, but like the rolling disaster of mass incarceration and the rolling disaster of austerity, I think is a good way to start thinking beyond this particular crisis into the larger crisis that is capitalism. Yeah, I mean, the whole world is a disaster, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not just, going great. No, no, but, like, the only thing that, like, I don't know, I mean, for me, at least, gives me hope is, like, seeing people fight for each other, fighting for someone you don't know, right? Um, and, like, not me, us. And, like, you know, Bernie's not the first one to... Uh, have the slogans that sort of capture the spirit of this. Um, uh, but like uh, the idea that, um, you know, whether or not we uh, co-opt the power of the state, we can support it and look out for each other. Um, giving that idea a manifestation and an embodiment through the organizing work that we do um, to not only like be a conduit of aid, but to build connections with these communities, right? And I think um, 
it's that's especially important in this moment because there are a lot of organizers in black communities in other communities of color in you know a lot of these communities that find themselves um targeted by the state uh who already understand the work they've been doing i think through the lens of mutual aid um and you know following their lead from an ideological from a theoretical standpoint and also following their guidance on the practical necessity of what mutual aid looks like in their communities because like you know if every white kid in brooklyn just starts showing up with their own ideas about uh you know what needs to happen um that becomes its own headache for the people who are already parts of these communities trying to organize them yeah word i think that's part of where the mutualism comes in of mutual aid right we're mm -hmm. not we're not liberals we're not parachuting in with like uh x y and z here's what we think you need like you gotta ask people and listen as well in order to really do it properly totally uh, but along those lines uh i think that there's a unique potential in this era of like pandemic social distancing where we're entering and by potential i don't mean like an opportunity i really don't like this kind of catastrophist idea that there's opportunity now like uh there's always opportunity to you know do mutual aid and help each other and become better people so this isn't necessarily a better opportunity and you alluded to this earlier lucy this like recognition of how fucked up society is and how things have just been a disaster worldwide for a long time and this isn't like a new disaster this is a continuation of that uh one essay that i was reminded of in thinking about that relating to social distancing specifically was um an essay called unity and separation from endnotes four basically explaining the terrain right now in the post-war era um where you know in, in the pre-war era you had this like manifestation of people in unions and in parties um and they would you know come together and occupy factories and have revolutions and such the post-war era you see the disintegration of that uh where you know the the production process is spread across the world so you're no longer you no longer are so concentrated in, in certain factories or in certain buildings you might move to the suburbs you might be going out to the movies less uh you might be hanging out in the square less you'll be more at home watching tv um so there's this this disintegration this fracturing on all levels um and that but that's still something that unites us because this is economized lifestyle that's uh part and parcel with the production process that's uh sp spreading the world and never has that been so obvious as right now where we literally are uh in some places mandated to keep our distance from one another. Um, and we're all up against the same condition now. So although there's still a million things dividing us, uh, there's this very clear unity where we can be all in it together, um, like in wartime. Um, and I think war is a particularly bad analogy and it's something that the state's gonna use, but there is, uh, it is important to, to note that during wartime, things can change very rapidly and very dramatically. And there's always a new world on the other side of that wartime. I mean, the last time we had a pandemic like this was in the middle of World War I. And World War I 
was greatly changed by that uh, Spanish flu epidemic. And on the other side of it, there was communism in Russia. There was revolution spreading throughout Europe. Uh, World War II, of course, had like much darker consequences and, and no revolution or few revolutions following it. But the technological advancement during that time was immense. And you had the continuation of this kind of pseudo-social democracy on the other side in, in the West. Uh, so we're, we're entering a different world. And hopefully we can, uh, this, this, in this early stage, if we have this conception of mutual aid spreading as a guiding ethic for how we enter this time of change, maybe something good can emerge on the other side. Yeah, Sean brought up the example of uh, rent control, right? Uh, which I didn't know this, but apparently was implemented in New York during World War II as a way to put a cap on inflation during that time period and still have it in some form to this day. So mm -hmm. one thing we need to be thinking about is how we can take advantage of this crisis or, you know, whatever. I don't want to, you, you gave a good disclaimer for that line of thinking earlier, Andy. So I'll just mm -hmm. say, you know, to what you said, but how we can try to make these changes permanent in some form or another, and hopefully they'll last past this moment in time. And hopefully these are changes that we can build upon instead of sort of letting the New Deal class compromise wither away like it did throughout the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, the word apocalypse is like something that jumps out at me because um, in a moment like this, because like the etymology of that word like traces back to the Greek word. It meant like revolution or revelation. Sorry, not revolution, revelation. Uh, very significant Freudian slip there. Um, yeah, I mean, it meant revelation. And I think like every moment, like what you're talking about, the world wars, uh, uh, you know, there's so many other moments like this, you know, that feel sort of apocalyptic. It's because we're learning something new. We're discovering something for the first time. We're, you know, it, it's literally a novel coronavirus, right? It's the first time it's ever been discovered in humans and it's unprecedented and we are learning along the way what that means for us. Mm -hmm. um, and so like to sort of consider the, the game that out, what that means is um, there is an immense chance for us all to learn a great deal from what happens. And even as we try to love and support and keep each other alive, um, uh, we need to be paying attention to what's happening because, you know, the things that happen in this moment um, could have the sort of far reaching ramifications that, you know, a moment like the end of World War II did. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I also want to give a shout out, by the way, speaking of uh, crisis organization, the the workers at the uh, NYC Amazon warehouse, which I believe yeah. is in Queens, they shut it down. Management was trying to make them come into work like four hours after they cleared everything out because someone tested positive for coronavirus. And they were like, fuck, no, we're not doing it. So hopefully, props to them, and hopefully we'll 
continue to see more of that uh, as this thing develops. Yeah, I mean, this this is why the school shut down. Teachers basically had a wildcat strike. This is why the auto industry is shut down. Um, people don't uh, really want to come to work and continue making profits for somebody um, if it's endangering their lives. Now, if those auto factories were converted into mask and ventilator factories, maybe they would want to come into work because they know it's for the greater good. So this is the kind of way that consciousness might shift. Yeah, also, I think we're beginning to see just how many of the jobs that we're forced to do are bullshit jobs right now, right? Like, there's actually a relatively small percentage of the population that is engaged in quote-unquote productive labor, which humanity actually needs in order to continue existing. And a lot of these other jobs, uh, they're bullshit. They exist for bullshit reasons, and people have them because you have to have a job, but they're not actually contributing anything. You agree with me that we don't need uh, five bars in every block in Bushwick? Mm, Maybe like two or three would be okay. Cut it down to two or three. Yeah, I mean, I really only go to one or two myself on the regs, but I would be sad if those bars went away forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, like, one of the mind- most mind-blowing, like, data points that I have seen in the last week here is the unemployment application numbers. Uh, yesterday, the state of Ohio announced they had had 78,000 applications as of yesterday, Wednesday, compared to only 6,500 the entire week before that. Um, I think it was Minnesota I saw today. On Tuesday, they had like 2,000 applications coming in every hour, whereas the normal load was like 40 to 50. Um, And like the people whose jobs are getting canned right now um because like they're viewed as uh you know non-essential or um because the businesses that employ them know that there's nothing that these folks can do uh because the you know structures of labor organizing have um are in the state they're in unfortunately uh it's really heartbreaking. I mean, that's been some of the, you know, I think some of the, a lot of the journalists that I follow online seem to have sort of settled into the um, sort of eye-popping merry-go-round effect of what's happening on the news. And uh, meanwhile, like everyone I follow who works in a restaurant has basically their last two weeks has been gone from this sort of like debilitating anxiety about getting infected and then they get laid off and it is like a snap pivot to, okay, now I have to have debilitating anxiety about how I'm going to survive economically. Um, And like fundamentally when you predicate people's survival on their ability to, uh, you know, produce labor, produce through labor, um, you know, any sort of threat to the modes of production becomes a threat to survival, even if it won't actually kill you itself. Yeah, and I don't want to sound cavalier about people losing their jobs at all. That's very bad. Uh, and it's it's a similar problem with automation, right? Like, mm. people are losing their jobs to automation, and, you know, in a vacuum, that's good, right? Like, 
people don't need to work as much as they do. That's a foundational tenet to communism itself. Um, the problem comes when we still exist in a world where everybody needs to earn a wage in order to live. So I'm hoping, hoping that this will help us think through uh, ways to provide for other people, ways to provide for all of humanity's needs, really, um, without making everybody work themselves to death 24-7 because it's just not necessary. Mm -hmm. So uh, one last question for you, Lucy, before we go. Um, you are also a science fiction writer. Lavender Nevada, yeah. Lavender a, Nevada. That one's a Western, actually. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, Genre fiction, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, I am working on a sci-fi piece right now. Um, That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I've been doing sort of genre fiction stuff on the side for a long time now. Um, a lot of that stuff is... Uh, uh, sort of outdated politically for where I'm at right now. So I'm sort of in this phase of trying to adapt these really strong characters I have from earlier works into situations that I think are, um, you know, more relevant. Cause I think like that story, Lavender Nevada, uh, like was very serendipitous, honestly, how it came together to be what it was. You know, I had, uh, been talking to someone who works at like a, a corporate media company about, you know, I'm in charge of this vertical and we're trying to do weirder stuff and it's got to be sort of fashion oriented and I'd love to do some fiction. And so I just wrote like this thousand word story about a, a, a bounty hunter who uh, comes to hunt down this woman in a mining town because she's been robbing payroll shipments and his belt buckle breaks and she kills him and through the guidance of Chloe Padlington at Commune, um, that sort of turned into this uh, romantic penny western about, um, you know, these like kick-ass danger dykes organizing their uh, silver mining town into a lavender commune. Um, now, so I, I maybe I just assumed it was taking place in the future on another planet, but uh, that's yeah. why I decided. <laughs> I'm going to have to read this. Yeah, it's it's the insert in the last issue of Commune, or uh, two issues ago. Number four. Um, what I'm getting at is, I think, you know, not only do we need to be taking care of each other, taking care of ourselves, uh, and, you know, surviving um, collectively, even, even as we're separated, but we also have to have a light at the end of the tunnel. Like, we have to imagine that something good can come out of this, because, of course, something good can come out of this and so speculative fiction sci-fi there's probably been uh, a million stories written about pandemics um, maybe we need one right now uh, so we can have uh, a positive vision of how everything can how everything's changing and maybe you're the person to do it yeah i'll give it a <laughs> shot i'll All let right. you know oh <laughs> <Hell> yeah <laughs> thanks so much for joining us um let's stay in touch absolutely uh, yeah. and ho hopefully i'll see you out there one day yeah thanks so much this was a total treat <laughs> okay yeah Bye. thank you yeah thanks for having me of course everyone stay safe out there and uh we will be producing much more content for you hopefully in the near future from the safe social distance of the internet but hopefully by uh talking to each other 
listening to each other's podcasts and uh, tweets. Oh, God, the tweets. Um, we can create some sort of solidarity even in our weird social distancing present. That's our form of mutual aid posts. <laughs> Life during war